0: Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in them to the 23rd chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah as we continue our Sunday evening series, Shadows of Christ in the Old Testament. The prophecy of Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible in terms of sheer word count, uh... Indeed, it's a prophecy like no other in that not only is it a prophetic word, but the book itself becomes a prophetic sign. For we read in chapter 51 and verses 63 and 64 that God commanded that after this book is read, it's to be tied to a stone and cast into the river Euphrates as a sign that Babylon will sink to rise no more. Jeremiah had been raised up by God as a prophet to the nations to pronounce his judgment to his wayward, covenant breaking, disobedient people. And for nearly 50 years, indeed at great personal cost, Jeremiah faithfully proclaimed the word of God to this headstrong, rebellious people. And in these words of Jeremiah 23, God promises that despite their disobedience and defiance, that he would yet subdue them in mercy. Because he has an eternal purpose for them that cannot be frustrated. So let's read the first six verses of Jeremiah 23. Hear the word of the true and living God. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. For your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more. Nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray with me and for me regarding the ministry of the word? Let's pray. O Holy Father, we bow in your presence, conscious, O God, that we look around us today and what we see is a society that is unraveling at the very scenes because we have turned our back upon your holy law. And Father, we gather together tonight as your people because we love you and we love your word. And we love to have our lives ruled by your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would be pleased by your spirit to apply your word to our minds and our hearts this night. That we might be normed by your word to the end that we are formed in, more into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, come by your spirit and bless this, your word, we ask in his name. Amen. As one works one's way through the reading of the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah, it is helpful to keep in mind that it is a prophecy and not a chronology. It's not a chronicle, so to speak. And that reality explains why the events of which we read are not set before us in this book in chronological sequence. And what we read in chapters 21 to some extent, in chapter 21, chapters 22 through 23, in essence, what we have here is a detailed explanation of the events which are going to transpire around the year 587 or 586 B.C. when the Davidic monarchy is going to fall. And Zedekiah, who will be the last king of Judah, whose very name means the Lord is our Righteousness, Will ultimately be taken away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, and God's people will go into the promised exile because of their rebellious waywardness. And there's a sense in which we're given here a picture. <clears throat> of the end of the story, even though there are 29 more chapters to the book. Again, that's because we're dealing with prophecy that is not given to us in the chronological sequence. And for different reasons, Jeremiah arranges his, the material content of his prophecy in order to impress God's word upon his people. Now if you're familiar with the previous chapter, chapter 22, you will have discovered that what we have there is this sordid parade of kings. The Lord underscores there the judgments that he's going to bring upon those monarchs who succeed the good king, Josiah, who died around the year 609 B.C. And following Josiah's death, there was this change, this chain, this sequence of kings, all of whom were disasters. All of them failed to mirror the godliness of King Josiah and thus did not live up to their kingly commissions. And so what we have here in chapter 22 and the opening verses which I read from chapter 23 is God declaring to his people, that in spite of the wickedness of their kings, in spite of the dereliction of their duty and roles as kings in leading God's people astray, God is going to raise up a better king who will fulfill all of his purposes. God's people have been the. Dep- ...betrayed and destroyed as we see in the opening verse of chapter 23 by false shepherds. And I don't think that he has in mind here specifically the prophets and the priests, although they may well be included. But he is thinking primarily of the kings who were responsible to exercise that shepherd-like care for God's people. These kings had failed, but God had in the waiting another king who would come and who would not fail. And we see, for example, in chapter 22 in verse 9, the source from where the failure of the kings of Israel and Judah came. They have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. They were a covenant-breaking, kingly line of rulers intermixed with occasional bright lights who would in their day declare the truth and the praises of God and summon the people once again to covenant faithfulness, but who nonetheless in the great onward succession of the kingly line, there was almost, if not quite, this unbroken line of covenant unfaithfulness. And the great tragedy was that not only were the kings and the prophets and the priests unfaithful, but the people loved to have it so as Jeremiah declares. Jeremiah 5, verses 30 through 31, we read, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. And my people love to have it so. They were content to fit in with their kingly role, the prophetic ministry of the day, it was undemanding, did not cut them to the quit, did not call them to repentance, and they loved to have it so. And so what we have here in the opening verses of chapter 23 is the Lord purposely Stepping in and promising, you'll notice, in these few opening verses to gather his people again unto himself. Verses 3 and 4. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, he says. And they will be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them. Who will care for them. God had driven them out in righteous judgment. But he would gather again to himself the remnant, verse 3, of his flock. Never think for a moment as we read through the calamities and the catastrophes of the history of Israel. That God is always forced to step in at the last minute, as it were, into the gap. That God is somehow reacting as if he's being caught off guard. And having to make do. God always has an election. God always has a remnant according to his purpose of grace. He always has a people. And he will preserve and keep that people. But the question I think. Implied by these verses is how is the Lord going to do this? Clearly, initially, what is in view here is the recovery of the peoples from the lands into which they're going to be sent into exile, Babylon and the adjacent areas. But that is only, if you please, the near or the more proximate fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophetic word. Because it's good for us to remember that God is always looking beyond the near and the proximate to the more distant and the ultimate. And that is why if we're ever rightly to understand the prophetic teachings of the Old Testament, we need always to remember that they are testifying beyond themselves and beyond their own day. That they are reaching out beyond their day to the ultimate day when God will raise up, as he promised in the garden, Genesis 3.15, a deliverer who would crush the head of the serpent. How will the Lord ultimately do this? Gather his people to himself and place over them faithful shepherds to tend and to care for them. Well, he answers that question, does he not, in verses 5 and 6, which will be the focus of our study this evening. Because hope for the future, as he tells us here, is bound up in the coming of the long-promised king, the Messiah. The one who in himself would be the chief shepherd of the people of God. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved. It's rather interesting that the words with which the fifth verse begins, Behold, the days are coming. That little phrase occurs some 15 times throughout the prophecy of Jeremiah. And here in chapter 23, when God uses that phrase, he does it to preface a message of hope. That little phrase, behold, the days are coming, is simply God's shorthand way of saying, hold fast. Hope is at hand. Help. Is on the way. Hold fast because I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, notice with me this evening, if you would, some two things, some two questions I want to ask and answer. Number one, who is this righteous branch? And number two, what will he do when he comes? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, that language, of course, does not originate in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Around 120 or 130 years or so before, we read those same words virtually in the prophecy of Isaiah in the 11th chapter. There shall come... Forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be, will be in the fear of the Lord. Now, the description we're given there, and here in Jeremiah chapter 23, is very revealing, is it not? The righteous branch, we're told, is going to be from the line of David. He will be from that kingly line. But that kingly line has become a fallen and a disgraced dynasty. And yet the Lord says that he's going to raise up from that fallen, disgraced dynasty a righteous branch. It's almost as if God is saying here, in the midst of the death that has settled like a stench over my people, I will bring forth life out of death. I'm going to bring forth a righteous branch a righteous king a king who will do all that the lord commands and please know this most significantly of all concerning this righteous branch he shall be called in the verse 6 it's a play on the name zedekiah that's what the word is The Lord is our righteousness, Zedekiah in the Hebrew. What are we to make of this righteous branch whom the Lord will raise up? Well, I think there's at least two things here that will indicate to us the identity of the righteous branch. First of all, he's raised up from the line of David. And yet, at the same time, is himself the Lord our God. He will be a man. He will come from the line of David. And yet, though being a man, he will be the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. And that's what was so fascinating for God's old covenant people. This is not the first time we're given in the Holy Scripture The indication of this conjunction of the human and the divine as set before God's people. The very passage upon which I spoke some weeks back, the ninth chapter of Isaiah, where it is prophesied that a child would be born and a son would be given he will be called so we're told wonder counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace Isaiah writes there will be no end on and on the throne of david and over his kingdom now think about that and put yourself in the sandals of these old testament believers Can you imagine something of the believing perplexity of God's people in the face of such prophetic utterances on the part of Isaiah and Jeremiah? To whom could Isaiah and Jeremiah possibly be referring? Of whom is the Lord speaking in those prophecies? In one moment, they seem to be speaking of one who will come, yes, from the line, the throne of David, who will be a true human king, and yet he is the Lord Yahweh, our righteousness. And of course, it's only when we're able to explain it in terms Of the fullness of God's revelation in the new covenant scriptures. That we can see his identity displayed in all of its glory. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. "...the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And she shall bring forth a Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us." Said the angel to Joseph in Matthew's gospel. And again from the gospel of Luke. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That is the trajectory of Old Testament prophecy. It is always pointing beyond itself to its ultimate fulfillment, to its ultimate omega point, who is none other than Christ of God, the Christ of God who comes, but who comes, mind you, in our nature. Indeed, in the fragility and in the vulnerability of human flesh because it is from the side of unfallen man that a savior must come and it must be as a sinless man that he may render perfect obedience to God in the place of his people and yet it is only as God that he can satisfy The righteous demands of divine justice for a broken law and provide the perfect righteousness that is ours in him. And then the second thing we're told about him is that his righteousness, his perfect conformity to all that God is, is not simply a characteristic of who he is. He is our righteousness. He is the Lord, our righteousness. He is in essence, he is the quintessence of righteousness. And he is the righteousness of his people. Do you remember how at the very outset of our Lord's public ministry we're told that he went to John the Baptist for baptism and John could not Begin to comprehend that request of Jesus. And he says to Jesus, I have need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says in response, Permit it so, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. As if to say, I must fulfill my calling. As the righteous one who has come to obey the will of my Father. And that, dear people, is where we as God's people anchor our hope this evening. Not in the sleazy imagined righteousness that we have spun of our own making. But in the perfect, sinless righteousness of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Think of those great words. In Romans chapter 3 where Paul writes, but now when Luther, when Martin Luther read these words and the truth of these words dawned upon him, it was like a light that began to shine in the heart of Luther. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed, manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, Paul writes, bear witness to it. This, Paul is saying, this is that to which they were bearing witness. And now God has brought it to fulfillment. Behold, he's saying... That to which the shadows of Christ were pointing has now arrived. Even the righteousness of God, Paul writes, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteous one has come and he is the righteousness of his people. What other righteousness could possibly do for the need of poor wretched sinners? Is there anything in ourselves that would render ourselves acceptable before an altogether holy God? Will it do for judgment day scrutiny to stand before this altogether holy God and argue, Well, Lord, take into account, I'm not quite as bad as Mr. and Mrs. Jones down the street here. I'm not as bad as that guy with whom I work day by day. I mean, in the end, the good is going to outweigh the bad. I can be accepted on that basis. After all, I'm better than many. All our righteousnesses, says the prophet Isaiah, are like filthy rags. They're of no use. Only one righteousness can fit us For the fellowship of God and the presence of God. And that is the righteousness of the God-man. And that is the righteousness that God provides for all believing sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. He, God, made Him, writes Paul, who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we in turn might become the righteousness of God in Him. It is union with Christ that gives us His righteousness. That is the good news of the Christian gospel. We have no righteousness of our own. We have nothing, you and I, to make ourselves commendable to God or acceptable with God. But God has provided for us a perfect righteousness of which we ourselves are bankrupt but is rich in His Son. And how do we obtain this righteousness that we lack and which makes us acceptable before God? We lay hold of it by covenant engagement. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the representative head of all of His people. And all for whom He represents, He grants to them His very own righteousness. But personally, that righteousness then becomes ours when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, when our trust alone is placed in Him, the God-man who has fulfilled all righteousness, has done for us what we could never do, lived the life we could not live, died the death we dare not die. And when our trust is placed in him, we receive in Christ. Paul writes the very righteousness of God. The Lord Jesus is the righteous branch whom God is raising up in Jeremiah 23. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently or wisely. Now how will he save his people? And this is so interesting. By becoming a king who would in turn become the vicarious sin bearer of his people. This is the preeminent supreme glory of the Christian gospel. The king, the exalted king, whom Isaiah in chapter 6 saw high and lifted up. And seated upon a throne. Becomes himself the substitute sin bearer. The accursed one for his people. And of course you see the broader context. That he becomes the model shepherd. The perfect shepherd. Chapter 3 begins, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my people. But here's a king who becomes a model shepherd. Why? Because he lays down his life for the sheep. That makes him the model shepherd who leads his sheep through service. And who leads his sheep by means of selfless sacrifice. I am the good shepherd, said Jesus, John 10. And there he writes or says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That is the essence of the kingly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a reign of servanthood for he reigns in the interest and on behalf of his people, the church. So he's the model shepherd, he's the model king who becomes the pattern of all care in the church of God. And it is a care through service. And it is a rule through sacrifice. Here God says, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And in verse 5, he talks about, our land, about the land. And I want you to understand here that we need to see from our studies of Abraham in Genesis. And again, here in Jeremiah, the new covenant trajectory of these prophecies. Because the land in the Old Testament becomes what in the New Testament? The cosmos itself. Abraham becomes not the heir of the land Romans 4:13 but the heir of the world the cosmos the great ultimate hope then of God's people was not the land as a geographical plot of ground for truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out they would have had opportunity to return Hebrews 11 But now they desire a better country, indeed a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And when we see the territorialism of the old covenant, we're intended to see that it merely pictures, indeed is a shadow, of the ways that the people alone could understand The ultimate cosmic renewal that the king, the righteous branch, is going to bring to pass. But as we come to a close this evening, please notice again what he'll be called. Because this is really the great hope of God's people. He will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Their great hope was in God raising up. A better shepherd and a better king who would one day become the Lord our righteousness. It is very difficult to avoid the conclusion that Paul has these very words in mind when he takes pen in hand in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 of Jesus Christ being our wisdom Our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. He is the Lord, our righteousness. For where does the hope of God's people lie? It lies outside of us and in another. It lies in the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther would often speak of the alien righteousness of God's people. Why? Because it's a righteousness that is strange to us, that comes from outside of us and from another, and which is put to our account forever and ever when we repent of our sins and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fulfillment comes In the womb of a virgin. It comes in the birth at Bethlehem. It comes in the cross of Calvary. It comes in the empty tomb. It comes in the one who became man. Who took our sinless flesh to himself. And from our side makes and provides for the righteousness that makes believing sinners acceptable to God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord our righteousness. Let's pray.